Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk. This is Shannon and Kathy. Good morning, afternoon, good evening. Good evening. <laughs> Today on the show, we are doing a child crimes episode, and in that episode, we plan to uh, talk a little bit here at the top about recent developments in the Madeline McCann case, which you may have read in your local news, and we're also going to talk briefly about uh, Who Killed Little Gregory, the documentary on Netflix. We're going to weave in some character, characterological um breakdowns which would include john benet and say all these cases are so similar man they come in so similar and then towards the end or towards the middle we're going to talk more in depth about the netflix documentary the trials of gabriel gabriel fernandez which for me is an unprecedented case it affected la county and the social work that they do there law enforcement um all sorts of things just as a systemic not only did uh, an eight-year-old an innocent eight-year-old boy die but then what happened afterwards and that's why the that's why it's called the trials of gabriel fernandez because everybody was put on trial so we'll get into that but we're gonna start with uh some recent developments in madeline mccain right it was ironic because when we decided to do this episode I was sitting at home and I get like the little news pop-ups on my phone and it said, you know, new suspect and Madeline McCann. I remember you texted me. You're like, Oh my God, this is timely. (laughs) Uh, I don't know actually how new it is. It might be newly released because Mm. this is actually from 2014 Mm. um, is when they started to suspect this guy. So if you guys haven't listened, we did, you know, part one of this and we talked about this entire case and uh, one of the things that it has in common with the other two that we'll talk about in a bit, um, well, with um, Little Gregory and Jean Benet, is that it's unsolved. Mm-hmm. And and so there's all this been all this speculation about, if it, is it someone within the family or is it someone completely separate? So according to the Sun uh, paper, mm-hmm. in 2014, the 43-year-old by the name of Christian Bruckner, I think is how you pronounce it, freaked out when McCann's name was brought up by the staff that worked at a kiosk bar that he ran. Mm. So uh, I don't know how to pronounce this person's name. Lenta Jolitz, I think, was present at the time, stated that when he heard her name, he indicated that he wanted them to end the discussion, so became very uncomfortable around it. Um, He started to cry out to stop. The child's dead now, and that's a good thing. You can make a body disappear quickly. Pigs also eat human flesh. Like he was saying all these really strange things. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's also been linked to other missing children, aside from McCann, including a six-year-old by the name of Renee Hass, I think is how you pronounce it, who was last seen in Portugal in 1996, or Hase, I don't know. Um, And a 16-year-old girl, uh, Carola... The names today. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Um, (laughs) Who went missing in 1996. Additionally, some believe that he also played a role in the disappearance of a five-year-old girl um, and that some have referred to him as the German Maddie. Whoa. Yeah. So he is now the new prime suspect in the McCann case. 
He's currently in jail due to unrelated charges, but could still be questioned about his potential connection to the case. So when speaking about uh, what the future could hold for Bruckner, mm-hmm. uh, editor-in-chief of the German newspaper said... Um, You know, they're trying to put together more and more of the pieces so they can put pressure on him and maybe get a confession from him. So, you know, I know when we watched this case, there was a lot and this came up in the other two as well as, you know, where the parents involved somehow and Mm -hmm. and um, just having an answer and trying to get some sort of answer has been really difficult. So, you know, it'll be interesting. But the parent I know the parents have said because it came back like, does anyone they had asked the parents, do you believe maybe she's you know, still alive. And I think everybody's really gotten to the point where they've, um, they're pretty certain that she's gone. Mm -hmm. Um, but it would certainly be nice for them to have some closure to that case, but that's the newest, latest and greatest with that case. Well, and it sounds like in 2014, just the way the article is written is that they, the reason why they originally suspected him and opened it back up or whatever, whatever it is they do is because of this conversation that someone reported reaction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess someone must've reported that conversation to someone else and it made it way its way to the authorities. And so, yep. 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 So I don't know. We'll see. There'll probably be more to come from that, but it looks like they have to get more information in order to even question him more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, uh, we want to talk about little Gregory for a bit? Man, yeah. Or just weave that into the other things that we were going to... So this case was really, 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 really um, similar to the Jean Benet case um, and the McCann case in a lot of ways. So just right off the bat, I just want to list some of these similarities here before we even talk about this family. But um, some of the similarities is, you know, clearly it's unresolved. Yeah. Um, There's a beautiful child who yeah. is, is uh, you know, used basically as ransom, um, harassing letters, mm. phone calls, mm-hmm. um, a lot of provocation, a lot of clannish family drama. Yeah, oh my gosh. Right? I, I got so, just to interrupt you for just one second, yeah. when I watched this documentary, which is a documentary on Netflix, Netflix called um, Who Killed Little Gregory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I got so lost in the family drama. Yeah. I was like, wait, there's a little boy dead, right? Like that is what we're supposed to be talking about. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, the documentary was horrible. I think, I don't think they, it was so all over the place. It was hard to follow. That That's what I can say. It was hard to follow. And not, not because it was in French and then dubbed. I mean, you and I both are totally fine and actually enjoy yeah, subtitles that. are great. This was just, it's feel, it felt very disjointed to me. But um, but I think what you're speaking to is, and why one of the reasons why the it was incredibly annoying is because they did go into a lot of the family drama. Yeah. But it was also really relevant to the chaos involved and how the media, mm-hmm. um, the, so the, here's another similarity, the involvement of journalists and the way that the media really botched uh-huh. Um, a lot of what happened made it incredibly confusing. So, and then there's also the uh, the local versus the national police drama. You mm-hmm. know, who's really in charge and who's supposed to be doing this? There was a lot of dynamics going on, and you'd think that I would like that, but yeah, it was it was, it was a hard story to follow. It was really hard to follow. And then you have again a sensationalism of the media, the way that they depict the mother, mm-hmm. and all three of them there's a witch hunt for this mother who is yeah. hypersexualized, looked at as, as, yes. uh, you know, the Lolita of the town. 
Um, and even the way this one journalist talks about her, they it's characterize incredible. the mother the same way in yeah. every single case, every single case. And then um, clearly potentially more than one person is involved. So that was another thing that came up too, is um, I was looking at additional information outside of this case. And they were saying how there is some speculation that it could have been actually three different family members because there was a lot of wow. animosity towards, um, towards the father, Jean-Marie, who's the dad, mm -hmm. who was looked at as really the patriarch in this whole family and had a lot of power and money. And, and there was a lot of resentment towards him. So there's, there's some mm -hmm. feeling that, you know, it could have been the brother, the cousin, and the uncle or something involved or the, the aunt. There was a tinge of that in JonBenet, too, right. in the sense that, like, oh, this privileged family, kind of. There totally. was that characterization, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of family involvement, which is what we saw in, I think, all three of them. Mm -hmm. um, so this little boy ends up falling victim to um, basically the fact that his father is looked at from, we don't really know, I mean, we don't know who the killer is, but he's he he's looked at as this villain um, that, that whoever did this work finds uh, a reason to take revenge. And you know, for a parent, mm -hmm. if you really want to hit somebody hard, you're going to kill their child or, oh or God, kidnap terrible. their child. Um, so this took place back in 1984. Um, and what ended up happening was the, the mother and father, so Jean-Marie and Christine, the mom, start to get these harassing phone calls from someone who identifies themselves as the Raven. It depends on which documentary you look at. Sometimes they call him the Crow. Yeah, it's the, it's in the translation. Yeah. <laughs> and it's based on an old French movie, I guess. Yeah. But he harasses the family. He manipulates, uh, he starts to manipulate them against each other. Um, and Jean-Marie is basically, uh, you know, singled out because he's very successful. Mm -hmm. So and, and he alludes to the fact that he's going to, you know, first I think he says something like he's going to rape Christine or something and then realizes that's not enough. So then they go to threatening to kill his son. Um, so the killer was certainly out to hurt the father. And uh, to make a really long story short, on October 16th, 1984, little Gregory is, is kidnapped from what we think is his front lawn. He's found in a river and he has drowned. Um, but some really, really interesting things about even the way his body was, was this was a river that had, it was a babbling brook, basically. And when they found his body, he was in really good condition, considering if he would have just been dumped in this river, he would have hit rocks, he would have bounced off, he would have had cuts. His, But how he was found was he was actually bound. Um, he had like a cap over his face, like a beanie or something over his face. And the way that they described um, his affect was that it didn't look as if he had been scared or there was any sort of torment or torture involved, that he actually died very peacefully. And as you start to watch the documentary, the idea that he might have been shot with insulin before, you know, he was actually dead before they placed him in the river. So before we get into some of the nuances of it, when we think about um, positioning of the body and, and uh, profiling killers, if the face of a baby or a face of a victim is covered, it's often thought that it's because it was a personal crime. Uh, that, that they, they knew the them, yeah. That's yeah, as a way of not common. having to look at them in the eye. So this is what opens up then, this, horrible, this huge family drama um, and 
when they start now moving into all the different parts. So we have little Gregory, we have Christine, the mom, we have the nanny, we have Jean-Marie, the dad, we have the Raven who we don't really know. This is where it gets really messy, Shannon, and probably where it drove everybody nuts is he's contacting the father, he's contacting the aunt, he's con- <laughs> is it the aunt that's the saying research, that? yeah. Oh my God. And then we have Michelle, the older brother. We have the grandmother, we have Muriel, who is a mess, the, the little redhead. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Bernard LaRoche, who ends up being um, like a cousin, I believe. And he ends up becoming one of the major suspects. Yeah, so uh, you, dear listener, if you're confused, so are we. Um, <laughs> what I can say is like, it did give you, a, I guess when we say all that, it's like it does give you a sense of the total and utter chaos that was happening in the family. Um, and I want to say too, that if you watch this documentary, um, there are pictures, crime photos of this little boy, you know, they always, they never show the face, but you know, bound, bound with his little feet and little hands being taken out of the river. And it's very, I mean, those types of parts of this documentary were very compelling Mm -hmm. because you remembered the victim. You remembered like this little boy is the one that like um, took the brunt of all this because Mm -hmm. for four hours or however long it lasts, you're talking about all these family dynamics, but right. And then um, just two more pieces about the potential suspects. The first one being Bernard LaRoche, who is the cousin of the father. I think they call him the cousin. There's, there's weird relations in this family. He ends up, um, getting on trial with this judge who is a whole other story we're not going to get into, but ends up basically dismissing LaRoche without enough evidence, and there's inconsistent reports. So the father gets his revenge. Um, Down the road, he decides to kill LaRoche, and he ends up going to jail for that. All the while, we find out that Christine, the mother, is pregnant again. So God forbid... She gets pregnant again. She must be the killer because she has no remorse, which is which is the conclusion that they're drawing here. Right. And this is where now we get into the more like sexist piece of this, which we have seen with Jean Benet and we've seen with um, the McCann case, which is there's really no evidence that the mother was the killer, but yeah, the way that a- they start to talk about her and vilify her. <laughs> right. Um, so this is a quote from one of the journalists. He said, I would have expected a tearful person with their hair, not done dressed in a careless manner. That's not the case here. Of course, that doesn't mean she's guilty, but there's doubt. There's something you want to, uh, alludic- Um, and then she, he goes into describing Christine as arousing everyone on the trial found her arousing and that everybody had something for her. So basically starts to say, you know, well, she was, she was a whore yeah. and she, and then she gets pregnant again. She's not even, uh, suffering the death of her first born, which is very untrue. A lot of couples actually get pregnant in times of trauma as a totally. way of bonding. So that there's so much in there about um, the way that they tried to find the killer based on these really sort of surfaced circumstantial pieces of evidence. So I look back at it and I go, no wonder they didn't find out who it was because it was almost like they were throwing darts in the dark. Yeah, it did feel maybe this was part of the problem for me is that often with the net with the not Netflix, but with the documentaries that we watch is like there's you get a sense of who's whose point of view we're having and who's running the show. Like there's some kind of a detective or a, um, 
like an attorney or somebody who's like running the direction of the story. And in this, we actually, you know, get a true sense of the chaos that is an investigation, which is that it's going off in 45 different directions. Now I know that like, that's what's real, Mm -hmm. but as far as telling a story about it and having me understand, I think you can't just like let that chaos be the story you tell. Right. right? Like, so that's kind of the difference. But, but to your point, what, what I was hearing was it's like, yeah, that's why there's no, there's nobody like telling us what to pay attention to. No. But. Not at all. I mean, it, it was really all over the place. And, and maybe that gives us a sense of why it was so hard to find who actually did it. Yeah, right. Because the, exactly. second, the second LaRoche gets let, let off, then we have, you know, dad murdering him. <laughs> and what's going on there and the journalists involved with that, all the while he's calling uh, Christine a whore. I mean, the whole thing was just so bizarre. And this poor little boy really just... Um, died as as an object he was used as an object he was used as ransom to get revenge on this father he was was four years old i just want to throw that out there in case that wasn't clear (laughs) he's four he was abducted from his home yeah his front lawn they think and bound and left in the river they didn't figure out where exactly the kill happened yeah they the killer the raven yes stated you'll find his body there. Right. So we just know where the body is and that there, then there was some investigation during it that I remember them saying that they feel like, you know, here's maybe the entry point of where mm-hmm. he entered the river and how far he had traveled. So they kind of had some idea of where he entered the river, but they still didn't know where he was right. killed. Right. Okay. And then the Raven, um, the Raven also knew a lot of personal stuff about the family. Yeah, so they kept thinking, they kept uh, telling a narrative. Maybe the, you got this impression too, but the narrative seemed to be that this person's a part of the family. Yeah, and this is another interesting piece I got from another doc that I watched, which was um, when they called someone with inside the family, when the Raven called somebody who was in the family, the voice was male. And when they called someone outside of the family, the voice was female. Yeah, there was all this confusion around like, it's a man, it's a man, it's a man. And then in one of the episodes, it's like, no, this is a woman. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, what? Which is why they think maybe it might be more the, than the work of one person, too. Right. So, or they just thought it sounded like a man and it was actually one yeah. the whole time. Or we just don't know. And then you also have to look at just the... Um, the fact that this was the 80s and they didn't have yeah, the, technology the technology and stuff that they have now. Yeah, the phone calls all landline, sound sort of like... All landline phone yeah, calls. Yeah, all the technology sounds really garbled. And um, also, I think it's important to note that part of the story is that this family was being harassed by this person on the phone that they call the Raven or the Crow for a couple of years mm-hmm. before this happened. They were being um, systematically harassed and threatened for a couple of years and then mm-hmm. they then there was a break and they thought it had stopped and then the boy's body shows up and it starts again yeah and i think it's like shortly after the fa- the the large family gets together for a dinner mm-hmm. and they're like we don't really know if this dinner was the caveat but it was during the dinner they're all calling the dad the chief they're calling jean marie it, it, almost in like this tongue-in-cheek cut there was a lot of resentment towards the father that's certainly what they portrayed mm-hmm. um so yeah. some similarities, some differences, but I think, you know, we have a, a cute little child who was abducted at the expense of, um, this is a John Bonet. Yeah. Someone wanting, you know, but similar similarities to John Bonet. I would say that the only thing is with John Bonet out of all three of those cases, mm-hmm. 
to me, there's more there. Maybe this is just projection that it could be the, the parents involved in that one. I don't get the same sense from McCann and from this one. Yeah, and I and I don't have as I have I don't have as much exposure to this case as I did to John Bonet. I mean, that was yeah. like so part of the news cycle for so long, and so many documentaries have been made about that particular case that I honestly feel like my judgment is clouded on the, on all of that because out of those three, the Jean Bonnet was certainly the most like sensational in my in my world oh, in yeah. my culture and so like it didn't go away for uh, even when it first happened i mean they're the still freaking making movies about it so i, I mean we watched that casting john benet um, that was awful which is just like a t another take on it or what have you it was bizarre um and so again like filmmakers and different people are still trying to yeah like make hay There's definitely so an obsession speak. around it um, and yeah. I think that's the beauty queen aspect. I think that's because there was such a clear sexualization of her and we blame the family for that, which mm -hmm. I understand. And I think that's the one piece of that case that like endures because no one was intentionally trying to sexualize Gregory or Madeline or okay. Madeline. Yeah. So um, I think that's how Jean Benet becomes so sensationalized and like part of our pop culture in a way, which is a horrible way to think of a little girl's death. Right. But, um, is because of that section, it brought us, it brought the awareness in our communities around little girls being beauty Queens yeah, and looking like little dolls and the sexualizing of it and the dancing and all that and, stuff. Yeah. The hypersexualization. I feel like mm -hmm. that was the reason why that, for me, like that's what stands out. That's so radically different about that case. For than sure. All these and maybe cases. why we tend to, like you said, look at the parents and go, how would you, yeah, why, why do you blame. allow your child? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, you and I certainly worked with enough families to know that there are lots of different stories going on there. And we, we have seen so many times how parents can get themselves, you know, in, into trouble with a particular mindset and, you know, not see the forest for the trees and do things that to the outside eye is like, what the heck were you thinking? And then you hear their story and you're like, oh, okay. So that's your history. And that's how you got in that mind. Like, I get it. Like we can mm -hmm. understand all sides of things, but I think from just an, an objective outside perspective, JonBenet, you just go like, what like, are you what? doing? Yeah. <laughs> what was happening? Those outfits, those wigs, those yeah. makeup, I mean, it was bizarre. Well, and that's one of the things that the casting um, John Bonet, like whether it's good or not or whatever, shown a light, put a little bit of light on is because it is in the context of casting right. a little girl to do that role mm -hmm. of John Bonet. And, and, it's literally meta. It's like, it's, these are the, these are the things that they go through to be a beauty queen. And then this is a movie about casting a little girl to be a little girl in a beauty king. You know, right. this is just like this meta thing where it's like, I'm sure that's why they did it is because that, that's the juggernaut. Of totally. That case. I think the only reason why that, um, 
documentary drove me nuts is because, <laughs> and I have a lot of friends who are actors, so I'm not trying to knock this at all, but just watching them. The little kid acting. No, watching the adults, like trying oh. so hard to, you know, just, just give me a minute here. I, I need to get into the you know, the mind of the father. And I'm like, I know, oh, I Jesus Christ. I, I mean, you and I have both worked in the industry. So, you know, like the difference between an actor and an actor. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So these guys were actors. This was their one chance to maybe make it by doing this documentary. And it was, I was like, oh, God, next next well you know what it did shine a light on to me for that what you're bringing up is that um when you are a new inexperienced actor which was a lot of what we were looking at of people trying to get their break and you know have their first roles and things like that um it's very common for new actors to um rely on exposing their technique and having to say what they're doing and explain themselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas a more experienced actor would be able to just get into a frame of mind without having to say, just give me a moment. I'm going to, you know, that's like an actor trope, right? But anyway, we're getting off the beaten path. So (laughs) it was, it was not a great documentary, but I think his story is relatable to these other cases that we've seen. And it's just, it's um, just saddening to see that a child can be, used as ransom oh horrible i think that um so i wanted to say one thing before we get into um gabriel fernandez which i think is where we're headed right now Mm -hmm. um unless you had anything else you wanted to mention okay Uh, i wanted to just quickly say that the we did an episode called child crimes uh True Crime Psychology, Child Crimes, Madeline McCain and John Binet. So we did that and we published that back in April. Yes, I think of our first season even. I was going to say, yeah, not yeah, this it's our, past April. Right. It's So it's so if you want to listen to that where we talk more about those cases, you'll go back a bit in your directory. But So let's talk the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. So... Those of you who don't know, there was a true crime documentary television series uh, that was released this year in 2020 about the 2013 murder and abuse of Gabriel Fernandez. He was eight years old. He lived in Palmdale, California. Um, this He was found beaten and burned in his home where he lived with his biological mother and her boyfriend. He had been living there for about eight months. Um, before that, he had lived with his um, grandparents for, uh, let's see, five, six, uh, like two, three years. And then before that, he was given up at birth by his mom to his uncle and his uncle's partner and had lived from zero to almost four with them and then went to grandparents and then went to mom. And so in that six to eight months that he spent with his mom, there were multiple occasions where he showed up to school uh, beaten and bruised and was open about the fact that he had been beaten and bruised. I, when I, we were talking to, when you're watching it, you, you, when you're kind of tracking, it was like the first time he started asking his teacher questions about, is it normal to be beaten with a belt? That kind of thing. And then that went to, Uh, He showed up to school with a strange haircut, meaning like parts of his head had been shaved and had um, burns and scabs and things on his head. And it just looked like he had been hurt. 
the third time was he came to school with an injury on his face and the teacher asked him what happened and he said that my mom shot me with a BB gun in the face. And then the fourth time that I tracked just in this documentary, again, there could have been many more times, uh, he was out for two weeks and then came back to school with a black eye and some injuries on his head that looked like cigarette burns and some were scabbed, some were new. So it just sort of looked like recovering injuries, bruises, etc. So during all of that, the teacher had reported these injuries um, and her conversations with Gabriel to uh, DCFS, which is our uh, child and family safety organization and this in, in Los Angeles County. Cause so I guess Palmdale is considered Los Angeles County. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the basic of kind of what had happened. And then flash forward to a little bit after that time period that, um, that last report that she had made, at least I, you know, I haven't read the transcripts, but it was around that time. A few months later, um, the, paramedics and fire were called to the home with uh, young Gabriel being unresponsive on the floor. The mother's boyfriend had called um, 911 saying that uh, he was unresponsive on the floor and to please respond. They asked the boyfriend if he was giving him CPR. He endorsed that he was. All accounts um, later in the trials uh, show that he was not all observations uh, gave evidence to the contrary that he was not giving him a CPR. They took the boy away and he died of, as a result of his injuries. And then the mother's boyfriend, the mother and four social workers that were involved with the case were all brought to trial. And that is why the Netflix special is called the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. I have such, um, this is, I have, I have really big reactions to this case for a number. I mean, we all do, but for a number of reasons, and I want to be really careful about yeah, keeping confidentiality here, but I'm on a case right now where um, I've been battling with DCFS in getting them to take my client's stuff more seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've been on trial. DCFS has shut down any... Uh, opportunity really for my client to discuss his sexual abuse. And so I'm just going to stop right there as far as any details about it. But I have a lot of uh, reactions to this documentary because um, I think one, there's a lot of cultural components here. Yes. Um, and not taking this case seriously. And yes. I feel like, you know, this certainly happens. Uh, I think, too, it's really easy to gaslight a child um, if you are in a position like DCFS or whatever and sort of getting them to minimize what they're actually experiencing. And I've seen that. Um, and then the other thing that really gets me is the amount of times that the deputies went to the house and, quote, unquote, found uh, zero evidence. So, I mean, th this, this case was so incredibly unnecessary. Um for so many different reasons. But I think that when we look at it, there's a lot of cultural undertones. I, I, I have to say, if this was a white middle-class suburban family, it would not have gone this far. 
Yeah, our child abuse, and it's talked about in the documentary, and I think we both wholeheartedly recommend that this documentary is watched. It's a really good one. It's a um, good one in the sense that hit this boy's demise really tells the story of um, systemic failure, familial failure, um, all kinds of failure, and then also the change that kind of came out of it. And whatever you think about those changes is certainly, you know, think about those changes. But it did spawn a lot of um, change. But what you're saying is, I think, the, um, the idea, and it's said in the documentary, that our child report child abuse report system is based on who's re who reports. And so, um, and then thinking it's DCFS that's in charge. And then you find out watching this, that there's a bigger entity involved that, um, purposely disallows certain information to get filtered through. Mm -hmm. Um, so the amount of, um, what's the word I'm looking for deception and what was actually going on in the higher ups. Yeah. I've gotten into multiple um, uh, arguments with the social worker that's on the case with me for this, just because I'm like, how can you not see this? Mm, it's you so know? It can be yeah. so frustrating and difficult. Um, I want to do two things. I want to reel it back just a little bit for anybody who might not understand our, our mandate and our child abuse uh, reporting system. So I just wanted to say that um, Kathy and I as uh, licensed individuals, as well as teachers, social workers, police officers, there's a lot of industries that are what we call mandated reporters. So what you learn about in this documentary is that they were executing their mandate. In other words, the teacher who was calling the social worker and um, discussing Gabriel's in, in injuries is mandated to do that. And also in this documentary, you see a lot of people not executing their mandated reporting um, duty, as well as falsify. Uh, they, they, again, haven't read the court reports. Um, I'm just watching a documentary, but they are... Um, they assert that there was falsification of records by social workers, that there was an attempt to kind of go back and retrace their tracks and try to make sure documentation was in order because what ended up happening is that no one even attempted to refer the child to the child abuse program medical evaluation. So that's where there's this crux of there were all of these injuries and all of these things happening and no one, and there was a few couple of people that were trying and trying to push the system to do the right thing and were unsuccessful. No one took the kid to the doctor because anybody that saw this kid would have started a chain of events where, and that is exactly what you're supposed to do. Even in the old system, what you were supposed to do is make the re recommendation for a medical evaluation. And this social worker, no one ever did it. No. In fact, I mean, there's a couple times during the documentary where one of the workers, I can't remember the relationship now, but he basically alludes to this DCFS worker, like, look at the back of his head. 
Yeah. What, what, what he, and, and they just, he was a security guard. Was that security the security guard, guard guy? Yeah, oh my like, God. He was amazing. They, he tried so hard. And that's when you find out that there's this larger entity that's blocking them from really doing what they're supposed to be doing because they're, these workers, their, their lives, their, their jobs are pretty much on the line if they violate what this entity is. Yeah. There's this whole assertion around like, no, don't, don't do that because we can't have you doing working overtime and different kinds of systemic. What you think is a, is a public or a state funded program. You now start to realize is actually privately owned. Right. And so it's scary. I mean, it was scary. All that was revealed Mm -hmm. because again, it's why people say, well, I can't trust the system anymore. This is another reason, which is we think it's being run with a certain structure and certain rules, but there's, there's a, a, a larger entity at play. That's actually the puppet master and all of this who are making money off of doing less. Yeah, there's there what you see is all of these people that are in it for the good of the children and then you also see that they all have supervisors and bosses and that like who is funding this and you know um social workers, social work supervisors with a little less than 300 cases on their docket and then they have social workers working for them that have 30 plus cases individually and how the system is overrun um and then you've got people who don't know what they're doing or don't pay attention to the things that they are supposed to pay attention to in each case, even, even a cursory glance like this, that's what's so appalling about this in particular is that even with a cursory glance. So I used to work in, um, on a children's crisis team. And so there were, everything from mild to severe cases of child abuse involved in my daily work. Now I I was not a social worker. I did not work in the social work system. So I can't speak to what it looks like in that sense. And I worked with a lot of great social workers um, and some that I didn't think were all of that responsive. So what happens is, you know, we, we see something, we know something, we suspect something. We call up, we call up the line, and then we have a mandated um, written report, the mandated verbal report within 24 hours. So you exercise your mandate, and then you move on to the next thing, which is incredibly difficult to do when you see terrible things happening. So I really felt for this teacher. Oh my God. Because she did what she could. She was exercising her mandated <sighs> reporting duty. And then, but still as a, as a watcher, as a viewer, you're like, Oh my God, why didn't you just like take him and walk him to the I hospital? Know, I, I've had, you, I had students <laughs> ask me that. I was yes, like, well, I mean, we, that's not yeah. what we, yeah, yeah we I know. Like, like save him that way. Yeah. yeah. Like the family has right that, you know, you, mm. you just can't physically intervene in that way. Who could have is the police. That was what was really hard is it's like, okay, this teacher can't physically intervene. She did exactly what she was supposed to do. Um, She tried as hard as she possibly could. And then later it comes out that, you know, these, there was no intervention. There was, you know, this family, this boyfriend and mom in their abusive home where they kept him in a box to sleep and daily beat, strangled, deprived him of food, obviously any medical care, can't go to the doctor. And 
they believe these people yeah. in their investigations. So, yeah. so I've had cases, because then what happens, you're a mandated reporter, something happens, especially like on a crisis team, you're really not going to see this person, the kid again. So you do your mandated reporter duty, and then months and months later, you hopefully get some kind of letter, and you get these letters, and some of the letters say... Um, the case was um, unfounded. We, you know, we we closed it or what have you. And then some of the cases, you get a letter that says um, some kind of other outcome. Child was removed. Blah blah blah. You get like two sentences. It tells you like what happened. Now again, you don't get a letter on everyone. In fact, it's relatively rare. But I've even gotten a phone call. Yeah, know, this is where what we're doing and where we are in this right now. For sure. Yeah. And so. Um, I just, it boggles the mind. Well, and, and I'm just going to. It's gonna, hard. It, it, really it is. Hard. And I'm, I'm just going to kind of jump forward real quick to the, um, the sentencing. So, you know, mom gets a life sentence, dad, uh, uh, the boyfriend gets a death sentence. But one of the things that came up in um, the trial, when, in the sentencing phase, yeah. which I've talked about this on here before. Some of the work I've, I've done is in risk assessment. And when we're talking about culpability and we're talking about intent, one of the things that came up was, did he intend to kill Gabriel that evening that he got upset and beat him to death? And, you know, they present him as like, well, he just couldn't control his anger, but it, he wasn't trying to kill him. And I'm sitting there, I'm watching this, and I'm by myself, and I'm yelling out loud, and I go, how can you look back at the trajectory of his abuse and not expect him to die? I think he was trying to kill him every time he put his hands on Absolutely. So how do you look back and go, well, when he made him eat cat litter, he didn't really want him to get sick. When they didn't give him water for a couple days and locked in a box, I mean, they were just messing with his head. From the get-go, they were hoping he would die in some way. When he didn't, it got to the point where he had to physically bash his head. Yep. So when they, that even came up in court around, well, you know, it was his anger and there was no intent. I'm like, there was fucking intent from day one. Oh, absolutely. They would laugh at him while he was getting abused. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, right. and then all the emotionally abusive underpinnings. Oh, I mean, that's a given. I mean, that yeah, was, I mean, that's, that's always like, coincides. That's, they had broken constant, him down. Constant. And then all of the, unfortunate traumatic bonding he had with his mother. He still just, just like we've talked about in the sex trafficking episodes and how a victim who's traumatically bonded, even when they can just walk away, not that he could. Every serial killer we've talked about. Yeah. They (laughs) stay or they still feel their version of love from this caretaker. The whole, this whole story is so incredibly tragic. It's difficult to, the other side of, my responses to it was, um, you know, besides my response to the teacher and having empathy for her was then, you know, working in the system is that it's so they were talking, the social workers were talking about certain programs that exist in our, in our, um, social work, mental health system, meaning the government systems that are in place, things that are called family preservation or FP or family maintenance, FM or family reconciliation, FR. Those are all sort of buzz terms in the system that when, you know, 
you get a referral for a family to a program, it'll say, you know, FM, meaning that this is quite possibly a kid that was removed for whatever reason, whether it was neglect or um, abuse of alcohol and drugs or domestic violence or actual physical and sexual abuse. So they've been removed and now the social workers have worked with the family. This is best case scenario, guys. They've worked with the family, um, gotten them sober, given them classes, whatever it is. They've The system has worked with them and now they're putting the child back in the home and then they're asking for assistance from different kinds of programs, RAP programs, TBS programs, there's all these little buzzwords, to help family maintenance or FM. And so these workers are going into the home, including the social worker, including the clinician, and they're going in and they're trying to preserve and maintain this family so that's what they sounds like they were a part of because at one point they were mentioning family preservation so it breaks my head <laughs> and heart but it breaks my head to think that there was this family preservation situation going on and there were these workers were involved and these checks were being made and Nothing, like nothing happened. I can't, I think when you watch this documentary or if you look at this case from a professional standpoint or from um, a popular culture standpoint, it's, it is the reason why it is exceptional and the reason why I think all of this um, systemic change and it was it was the it was the breaking point of that system because what I think is that how many kids were there before Gabriel that came to the point of almost dying and didn't die but had the same treatment by the system and because Gabriel was abused and died it became his story and I'm thinking of all of the other children well that there's were even not. some after Oh, that once they, sure. when they instilled this blue ribbon commission, yeah, you know, like I'm looking at this article right now that's talking about like how in 2018 another child died, and then in 2020, yep. you know, and so they came back and said, clearly we're not, we're still not doing enough, <laughs> clearly not working. Like, thank you for the commission, but and well, and that is what they say in the documentary. One of the women is like, yeah, everybody rolled their eyes at first about this commission because it's like, oh yeah, another commission. That's what yep. the system does to say we're paying attention now. Yep. It'll be okay. Yep. Don't don't defund us, right? Yep. So yeah. yeah, I think I think that um for me just I've had to make over this pandemic, I've had to make more abuse reports and I always cringe when I hear, well, it's going to depend on law enforcement if they want to reopen this and take a look and I'm just like, fuck, well, this is just done. Um because it it, it just you it, it's hard, like going back to the the feeling about the teacher. It's it's, and I, I try to explain this to my students in class because they're like, "Can we do more? Can we?" And it's like, "No, we are not investigators. Our job is to report what they do with that." And this is where we have to learn how to contain our reactions to a certain extent. I mean, mm -hmm. we we can advocate in other ways if yep. we're looking at policy change, but in that actual moment when we're reporting, yeah on a micro level, we can try to do things on a macro level, but on a micro level in that moment, it does feel helpless at times because you know it's going to stop there. Yep. Yeah, I mean, what we can do is um, consistent, clear reporting. 
because call back, call back, call back, call back back every time, because that's the way, just like in any law, just like with any law, it's like the sustained reporting is what eventually is supposed to activate the system. And I think that is another one of the things that's unfortunate in this case is that there was sustained reporting by the teacher and others, actually, there are others in this that we won't get into that, that happened and, and the system failed this kid. Yeah. And that's what you're basically left with when you watch this documentary. But uh, honestly, if you're in any way interested in the mental health system or if you're a mental health worker, it's really like, I would, I would love it if my staff would watch this because it would, hopefully support anyone who ever feels because I train and help people through making CPS reports that have never made them before. Like that's part of one of my things that I've done many times. And, and so I just, I would hope that it would be in some ways inspirational to know that it's your piece of the pie Yeah, that you're, that you're doing it. Don't be scared to do it. Just, Just here are the guidelines. We'll always, you know, someone who's more senior will always support you. And, and uh, even if you're just starting paper trail. Absolutely. That's what I tell them. Yeah. I say it doesn't matter if you don't have all the information. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you don't know what to say to a question. You just say, I don't know. And then they ask you the next question. Just get it in there because you don't, they can't tell you. Because people, of course, you try to ask the operators. That happens all the time. So is there a case open? <laughs> but they're not allowed to tell you. But, um, they, you just, you don't know how many times your call could be the one that sends it, tips it over. could be the tipping point of an investigation. So anyway, that's my little diatribe. Yeah. I went off very for true. a minute. No, it's very true. Thank you for the discussion. Yeah. This was, um, this was an interesting thing. And so, you know, go back and listen to our first episode on child crimes. Um, I hope this is the last one, mm-hmm. you know, one yeah. always hopes. I don't yeah. I don't know. But thank you so much for listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.